0: I want to start out with an American tradition, a Big Mac. All right, well, oh, he doesn't like it. All right, all right, who likes fast food, though? All right, how many people would eat fast food if food allergies were gone and it was healthy for you? Yeah, see, there's less hands there. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Apparently, people want to be indulgent. But one of my favorite places, Um, I don't go there as often because I wish it was healthier, but as you get older, it doesn't do well for you. Um, But I would order a Big Mac with a medium fry and a medium Coke. And this is the advertisement that I would see, let's say, on TV, um, or maybe on social media, on your phone, or even a radio ad where you can hear the Coke just fizzing as they're pouring it in, or the grill of the hamburger just sizzling. But either way, advertisers get us to these fast food places via an advertisement. Now that burger up there, it looks good. The fries are golden brown. It's an ice-cold Coke. It just sounds great. So what do I do? I get in my truck, and I drive to McDonald's, and I order the food. And then I get home, and I open up that brown bag, and it is not what I expected. It looks nothing like that. In fact, here's a couple more examples of what an ad looks like, because they're not even using real food, right? It's just an artist, and what you actually get. Whether you like Burger King, McDonald's, Wendy's, Taco Bell, whatever it is, we're drawn in with the ad. We go there, we get the food, we get home, or we eat it there, and we're like, that does not look like that at all, ever we're let down, our expectations are not met. I wanted a perfect burger. But there's something more important than burgers that we're let down about. And that's just expectations overall. And this section of scripture is a lot about expectations. We actually have a ton of expectations on various things in our lives. We have expectations of ourselves, often that we don't meet expectations of our spouses that are often unattainable our kids our jobs our church our politicians our school and you can go down and down the list we expect things from these people or institutions right but what about jesus what do you what do you expect about jesus what do you expect him to do Well, in Matthew 11, we encounter John the Baptist. We have not seen him since Matthew chapter 3 in this gospel, and that is when he baptizes Jesus. So enter into the scene on Matthew 11. John is in prison, and I'm going to tell you, his expectations of who Jesus is and what he's doing does not add up. It's not what he wants at all. And I'm wondering if we fall in that same category because the overarching theme which is hard to capture in this big section of of uh, scripture that i want us to be thinking about with expectations today is this our expectations of jesus often fall short of who he is and what he's doing it's a two-part thing we have expectations of who he should be and what he should be doing And John, the greatest man, as we'll see, born of women outside of Jesus Christ, had some expectations of Jesus, and they weren't being met. So how does he handle that? How do we handle that when we have expectations that aren't being met? Because we want them to be met. So with that, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. I would ask you to scrap in it is 19 verses we'll read all 19 verses and then break this up into four different parts. So Matthew chapter 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, "Are you the one who is to come?" or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Who would miss that's a big passage? There's a lot there. I told Chris, thanks. (laughs) Um, But in all seriousness, it is a really good passage. On first look, I asked myself, what am I going to do here? Because it's just about John the Baptist. And then I realized there's a lot of gold here to unpack. So we'll do that by splitting it up into four sections. But before we do that, I want us to know where are we in the context of Scripture? The last couple weeks, We were studying Matthew 10, and this is where Jesus sends out his disciples. And as Pastor Chris instructed us last week, you're going to be like sheep among wolves. I want you to fear God and not man and take up your cross. Now, in Matthew 11, we start out with John the Baptist in prison. And then beyond that, that uh, Chris will teach on next week is Jesus judging unrepentant uh, cities and then comforting the weary. But the setting, the actual setting I want us to, like, hone in on at first is John the Baptist in prison. Likely he was in a place called Fort uh, Macarius. I was going to ask Trevor if that was correct. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. Um, But this is a place that is dark, wet, it's damp and lonely, and in despair. I actually rented a, or didn't rent, but purchased an audible book that was a fictional story of what they thought it would have been like for John in prison. And I listened to that, and that was staggering, because they thought his prison cell could have been 12 feet down in the ground as a pit, and they'd have to be lowered by a rope even to get in. So just wrap your head around that, because I'm pretty sure John did not expect one day, I mean, he had fiery language, as we'll see. But he didn't expect that he's going to be in prison. I mean, he's the one preparing the way. He did everything he needed to do, and now he's in prison. But that's where he's at, and I'm wondering if that sometimes is where we're at. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. I believe in you, God. I'm in a rough spot. I'm a little frustrated, and John was frustrated. So the very first thing that we encounter with John is a question that he has his disciples go and ask. But this reveals John's doubt. John was doubting at this time. He said, here, he was talking to his disciples, John's disciples, and he's like, hey, I, I can't take it anymore. Can you, I gotta know, I mean, I'm, I'm looking over scripture, things are checking out, but some of this just seems missing. Can you go ask Jesus, are you the one... Who is to come, or should we look for another? And one of Dave Cummings actually reminded me of this in in Prayer Partners, he he said, and this is the John the Baptist that baptized Jesus, saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove, and he said, hey, this is my son, listen to him. That same John the Baptist is now saying, I mean, I hope I'm right. I mean, is he the one? You need to go ask him. And why is he doubting? Why is he frustrated with Jesus? Honestly, Jesus isn't doing what John wants. He wanted something, and he wasn't doing it. Because John expected Jesus to come with judgment at some point. Like, he's good with Jesus the healer. He's obviously fine with Jesus being holy, although John himself probably wouldn't hang out with some of the sinners that Jesus did. But he's wondering where the judgment is. In Isaiah 35 and 61, There's two different sections that talk about the Messiah coming, and phrases like vengeance and judgment are very evident in that. Also the healing, but John is like, where is it? In fact, John seems to be very interested in judgment because in Matthew 3, before he even baptized Jesus, you can tell he's ready for Jesus to bring the kingdom now, get that winnowing fork, get the chaff, go burn it with unquenchable fire. John's like, let's get the show on the road. Let's usher the kingdom in. Get me out of these chains. Right? That's what he's expecting. That's what he wants. But I can only imagine where John is right now. In a prison cell, dark, alone. And he's been doing everything the Lord had wanted him to do to prepare the way. And now he's doubting. And he's uncomfortable. Not only physically, but mentally. And that's what doubt does. It is an expression of discomfort. That's what doubt is. And the question that I have for for you and for me is even the strongest leader, meaning John the Baptist, even if he can doubt, maybe we can doubt. Even the strongest leader, under the right pressure, might doubt. And I know I'm relatively young, but the past 18 months, and honestly, we're all sick of hearing that, right? But it has been the strangest I've seen in my entire life. Nothing remotely close to any time before that. And as I was studying this, and I'm thinking about John, and then I'm thinking about all of us in the place that we might be similar to John in prison, but it's a little bit different. We just can't keep, keep going this way. If everyone is just this busy, this depressed, and this scared, this hurting, this angry, this confused, Jesus, why? Why aren't you entering in? Why aren't you taking the chains off? I, I believe you. And that's where John is. And often when I personally doubt, I I asked Pastor Chris for a book recommendation a long time ago. I don't even think it was about doubt at that time. And he recommended a C.S. Lewis book called God and the Dark. I did not apparently pay attention to Chris because I got a book called God in the Dark by Oz Guinness. Not luckily. Providentially, uh, the Lord put that in my way because it was all about doubt and faith. Because when I start having my own doubts, I start asking myself, do I really believe? Do I? And then I feel guilty. And one quote from that book that was extremely helpful to me, and I've underlined probably no book more than that one, is this. I know it's a big quote, but bear with me here. Doubt is not the opposite of faith, nor is it the same as unbelief. Doubt is the state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief, so that it is neither of them wholly, and it is each only partly. Long story short, doubt is the halfway stage. And that's where John is. He's in the halfway point. He didn't lose his faith. He believed in Jesus, as we'll see here in a second. But is this where you're at right now? Are you in that halfway stage where it's just, it's tough? So what do I do? What do I do with this doubt, this confusion, this anxiety, this depression? That never seems to get fixed. Well, John sets an example for us. And in faith, because if John lost his faith, he wouldn't go to Jesus. But he still had his faith. Yes, doubts, for sure. But he had his faith, and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send my disciples to Jesus and just do a double check. Just verify for me. Because he wanted that, just that assurance. He was just like, God, just tell me. And this is the pattern I would argue we need to have. And that is when circumstances cause you to doubt, do what John did. Go to Jesus and his word. And I must have missed in the first service when Missy had, um, I forget, it was Psalm 22, I think. When we focus rightly on him and praise him, it definitely helps take stuff off of us. But I don't want us to pretend that these dark places, the dark place that John was in, was not hard for him, and that Jesus just doesn't understand. That's not the case at all. He can sympathize with all of our weaknesses. But when we get to a place where it drives us to doubt, and we're in this halfway point, we either can pull inward, or we can do what Psalm 22 that Missy quoted, and we can go to Jesus and his word. The next section is, what is, how does Jesus answer John's disciples? We see that in verse 4, and it's with tremendous patience. And he doesn't just say, yeah, I'm the one. And actually, I was talking with Brian Howard after the first service, and he goes, the fact that John even asked that question is kind of bold. Like, hey, are you the one? I just need to know. Like, if, if I was Jesus, I'd be like, how dare you? after all we've been through like and you're gonna ask jesus doesn't answer that way at all he answers john's disciples this way he says here i know john's struggling i can see him in prison and i gotta believe that it pained jesus but there's other things going on that john doesn't see but he's like you know what i'm going to be patient i'm going to ask john's disciples come here i want you to see the blind see the lame walk the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. Also, the poor have good news. Preach to them. This is actually Jesus talking about fulfilling Isaiah 35 and 61. That still had that vengeance part, but as you can see, Jesus was fulfilling both both of those and many other parts of Scripture perfectly about the eyes that could not see can now see, the ears that could not hear now hear. In fact, I envision uh, John's disciples and they get to Jesus and they say, hey, John, you know, he's in a rough spot. He just needs to know, are you the one? And I think Jesus took them over and just started healing people. So with John, John's disciples would have been with Jesus. They would have seen with their own two eyes. Someone who could not see can now see. And then they look over here and they'd be like, she couldn't hear and now she can hear. Or that little boy died and now he's alive. And the poor are getting preached the good news. I guarantee you, I speculate, I guess, but I, I'm going to strongly urge and guarantee that John's disciples go and see John. And they're like, I don't even know why you question, dude. Like, seriously, I just watched people that were blind, deaf, all be healed, the dead raised. He's fulfilling perfectly the prophecy that was spoken of him. And that just goes to show that Jesus was giving proof, not only in word and deed, he was doing these deeds in front of John the Baptist's disciples, but also recounting likely what John was thinking about with Isaiah 35 and 61. And that's what we need for doubt. God is the best answer for doubt. Like, without hesitation, God is the answer to all doubt. And the largest part of doubting comes simply from not knowing or experiencing what God has said and done. Jesus is saying, hear and see, and then shows them, so that they would know, one, the word, two, experience the word being fulfilled at that very moment, so that they can be assured The only thing, though, is even though Jesus answered in patience, there was a gentle rebuke, you could call it, in verse 6. And that is, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is the part that I have the most difficulty with myself because so much pain and frustration and doubt and confusion is in our world and Jesus is telling John, look, I know you don't understand everything that's going on, but I need you to trust me. Blessed are you who's not offended by me. I know that you're sick and hurting, and I can sympathize with that. I know that you lost your job. I know that you have different friends now than you used to. I know things don't look the way you want, but you've got to trust me. You've got to trust me. Proverbs 3 5 says, Lean not on your understanding. Why? Because we're supposed to trust the Lord. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's like, Look, yes, I am the one. I have not forgotten about judgment. Judgment's coming. And in fact, later in chapter 11, he does do some judging. Uh, John would be happy about that. Um, but he goes, I have to follow my Father's will here. I am fulfilling everything. You don't see the whole picture and right now personally myself I, i'm lost like it it's tricky out there right now but we have to do what psalm says is fix our eyes on the one that did heal that did raise the dead jesus christ our our lord and savior is who we need right now next in verses 7 through 15 jesus addresses the crowd he kind of does this with a question. So this is John the Baptist. His disciples are departed at this point. And now he's just addressing a crowd around him. He asks a few questions about John. He says, what, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? John the Baptist would not have been an easy guy to twist his arm. He's straight and narrow. It's not going to happen. Are you going to see a man dressed in self clothing? Nope. You're going to see a dude in camel's hair eating locusts and honey. Yeah, opposite of that. But are you looking for a prophet? Yes, indeed, John was the prophet to prepare the way. And this is what's weird is John sends a word of doubt, of questioning towards Jesus, and now Jesus is confirming and blessing the man that just doubted him that's weird but he confirms john this way he quotes jesus quotes malachi 3 verse 1 where it says behold i send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you and what's interesting is in malachi it's actually referencing god the father but jesus kind of does this like subtle grammar trick and i'm not a grammar king just ask anyone and he switches it to your meaning jesus He does that slight hand trick there because it's true. So not only is he confirming that John the Baptist is the prophet who was to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, it's also Jesus in the flesh right there. He changes that personal pronoun on purpose. And then Jesus goes on to say, among those born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist. The man that is struggling in prison because he called out Herod for some wickedness wants Jesus to desperately rescue him right now, doubts Jesus is the greatest man born outside of Christ. And then it gets even crazier because Jesus doesn't answer in a way John would have expected, but I think it would have reassured John for sure. And then we look what jesus says next and he says yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he does that mean the thief on the cross that have no time to do a lot of god's work is greater than john the baptist yep if why is that like that seems like a backhanded compliment like okay john's really great but seems like it's fairly easy to be better than him and it's not like a who's worse or who's better what jesus is saying is if you believe in me as your savior it's a lot better because you're born of the spirit not of the flesh you're going to be with me forever in eternity without sin and here's chemo without doubt anymore because you will know and you will see your faith will become sight and what's so crazy about this little section Jesus actually asks in verse 14, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come, meaning John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was, not reincarnated or anything like that, but in spirit uh, he was the same. And I thought when I first read these 19 verses that this whole passage was about John the Baptist. He doubted, and then Jesus is like, hey, he is the prophet, you know, And then there's this weird part we'll address at the end that I was like, what am I gonna do with this? And then I realized, no, 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 no. The whole time, this passage, while it is about John, is truly about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one. If John is Elijah, which he is, and since he is, that means Jesus Christ is the one. This whole passage is about John, but Jesus is also telling you about himself, proving himself to John's disciples, to all of us here, by word, by fulfilling the Old Testament, and by deed in front of them witnessing it. So when we doubt, go to Jesus and his word, and you will see that Jesus Christ is the one. He really is. And then we get to this section of scripture how many of you, I want you to be honest, because I'll be honest with you, I've always thought this was a weird section in Scripture. Anyone? All right, there's only a few brave souls. Everyone else understands. All right, I don't. Um, I've always thought it was weird to come across, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance, we sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Why is that even in there? Jesus says there's a generation he's talking to, and I would argue our generation as well, of these children that are just not happy no matter what you do, which is a lot like us sometimes. So to bring it on lower terms, at least for myself or down to earth, playing the flute and dancing, let's equate that to happiness. And singing a dirge is a, like a song of lament for sadness. And what Jesus does in verses 16 through 19, he does a lot of comparison of this you have the flute and you have the dirge and then you have John did these things, Jesus did these things, yet wisdom is justified by your deeds. So let's do that same thing and compare John and Jesus. What is John like? He's stern. And one thing one of my, my mentors told me a long time ago, and I'll never forget it, is he goes, God is a happy God. That means Jesus is happy. It doesn't mean he's happy that you're in a dark place, but Jesus is happy. If you've ever seen that Chosen episode that Chris will reference, I've seen him. It made me see a new light. I was like, oh, he actually, wait, he was happy? Like, that seems weird, but he really, really was. Next, what was John like and what was Jesus like, their preaching style like? John was fire and brimstone, baby, come on. Uh-huh. He called out sinners, especially Herod. That's why he's in prison. But then what's weird is Jesus is gracious to sinners and even healed them. Next we see John. He's abstaining from drinking and feasting. But Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners? So neither of these men, John who prepared the way for the Messiah, meaning Jesus Christ, Meet expectations of the religious leaders of that day. They're not wearing flowing robes. We either got camel hair or this dude that's hanging out with tax collectors. Neither one meets expectations of humanity. In fact, rarely or often our expectations do fall short of who Jesus is and what he is doing. But this generation that Jesus is talking about, and I would argue some today, would likely call John demon-possessed because he seems like a real weirdo, literally and then we have jesus maybe like well he's drinking an eating; he must be a glutton and drunkard he's not a very good christian which would seem really weird to say about jesus christ himself but what this scripture tells us is not that john is demon possessed jesus is not a glutton and a drunkard he is perfect he cannot go against his own character john was the elijah to come prepare the way for who the messiah the chosen one of God. But one of the things that reassured me, and we'll kind of close here soon, is near the end of verse 19, there's something that I don't want us to miss, and it's also echoed in Romans 5, 8, and that's this. Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for you, And he died for me. Does that meet human expectation? That God of the universe would send his own Son, God in flesh, perfect and holy, to be a perfect sacrifice for you and for me? And as Missy said, it doesn't meet my expectations, it blows them out of the water. It's crazy. Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners, he really is. This morning, we started out with a Big Mac, fries, and Coke. Who wants one right now, by the way? Like, I should get some McDonald's share after this right now. Um, We started that out, but we know when we see that image that it's too good to be true. And I was reminded earlier this week that often we as Christians, old and young, have an Eeyore mentality, and we're like, this is too good to be true, too good. My son told me this week, Dad, I'm not sure if I believe, and I asked him why, and one of my son's reasons was, Dad, sometimes this just seems too good to be true. My son was in the halfway stage of doubt. I know he believes. I know he does. But doubts were creeping in. And I had to tell him, Jackson, your dad is 27 years older than you, and I guarantee there's people older than me in this room. I have doubts sometimes, too. I do. Because life is really hard sometimes. And he doesn't enter in the way that I want him to when I want him to. He doesn't always. doesn't mean that he won't or in a different way. But John chapter 11, when someone walks up to you or even in your own life and says, I don't know, it's just too good to be true. Let's follow John's prescription for doubt, for darkness. And that's this. First thing we need to do is go to Jesus. John didn't lose his faith. He went straight to Jesus, the source of his faith. Because if he pulled inward and isolated, if I let my son do that, we're not going to be in a good way. And I'm not saying that you can lose your faith. We know that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith from Hebrews 11. He will hold you fast. No one can snatch you out of his hand from John 6. There's so many verses But it doesn't mean you won't have doubt so when you do go go to jesus he is the one and go to his word that's what john was reciting in his mind we need to recall who jesus is and what he has done and we have it right here come here and see hear and see what he has done he is fulfilling everything perfectly and remember How he has changed your life. It is not that you changed it. He changed it. He did. By the power of his Holy Spirit, by his grace alone, he saved sinners like us. And lastly, honestly, one of the hardest parts is wait and trust. I don't know how long John the Baptist had to wait. Maybe the disciples never got back to him and his head was off. Because we know that happens a few chapters later. I don't know the timing. I don't. But I, without any hesitation, guarantee you that when John the Baptist, his head, left his body and he saw Jesus Christ fully, without doubt or anything, it's going to be nothing like a false advertisement at all. It's going to be like the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians we will not have human words to express what we see. In fact, the reality of Jesus is better than anything we could ever expect. Better than anything we could expect. Jesus is better. Go to him in your dark times, in your good times. I promise you he's better than you'll ever expect. So, with that, I'll have the praise team come up and ask you one final question. Will you hold on to your expectations of Jesus? Or will you trust him as he really is, the Holy One, the Messiah, the Chosen One of God that John prepared the way for?